0: All right, before we start the show, a quick plug. The NPR shop features gift items for the public radio fans in your list. T-shirts, totes, hats, mugs, and more are available at shop.npr.org. And if you need to stock up on podcasts for your holiday travel, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour teamed up with Lauren Ober from The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts to tell you about some of the best episodes of 2016. They've got highlights from shows, both big and small, and the scoop on some of the best newcomers of the year. Find our great big 2016 crossover episode on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast feed at npr.org podcast and on the NPR One app. All right, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast with an episode of Listener Mail. This is where we answer your questions about the issues, the Trump transition, and anything else you're curious about. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress.
1: I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
0: Domenico, you were a little excited about the jingle bells. I like the, the jingle bells.
2: It's yeah, great. It's Although nice touch. At
1: first I was wondering if it was my puppy that had gotten through the uh, fencing around the Christmas tree to grab the stuff off the tree again. But but has that been a thing? It's been a thing. How's that going? Baby
2: gate's coming in handy again.
1: Baby, baby, I had to pull the baby gate
0: out of the attic <laughs> to put around the Christmas tree. You know what's just as exciting as thinking about puppies and Christmas trees? Politics. Thinking about the Electoral College. Yes. Psych. Because today is the day that the Electoral College is doing its thing. 538
1: people from around the country meeting in state capitals as we speak right now. Something routine that happens every four years that apparently only people care about now. mm <laughs> <laughs> That's where we're going to get into in a second, because uh, we have been getting a ton of
0: questions about this and the amount of questions that we've been getting in this really pales in comparison to the questions or emails or pleas or threats that have been going to the electors themselves. This is basically a formality every other election, isn't it?
1: And most likely this election. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to overturn the outcome of the election. Uh, Certainly not. Uh, But you have seen uh, liberals in particular writing lots of letters to these electors saying that they need to vote their conscience, that they should change what their state had decided to do and uh, go against voting for Donald Trump in particular. Now, that's most likely not going to happen because as these folks are picked, these are state party activists for the most part. Uh, There was one guy uh, in a story that we profiled recently, who's a former state representative from Arkansas, said that he's been deluged by all of these uh, letters from folks saying that he should drop his support for Donald Trump. And he said, absolutely not. He likes Donald Trump. So for the most part, the folks who are Uh, going to be voting for Trump like Donald Trump because they come from those state parties.
2: In a way, this almost reminds me of the superdelegates leading in on the Democratic side, leading into the, you know, as the primary was winding down, these superdelegates, many of whom had pledged their support for Hillary Clinton or had known her for 35 years, were getting deluged with calls and emails and threats. Um, from people who said that voting for Hillary Clinton was undemocratic and that they should support Bernie Sanders.
0: From the Electoral College to superdelegates on the Democratic side to Republican delegates on the Republican side, this has been like the year of things that happen every election becoming like firestorms of public interest <laughs> and intrigue. And people who do politics all the time just being a little confused, like, wait, what? This is a thing right. this year? Every, uh, and
3: I, every four years we get out the word emolument in our dictionary. <laughs> OK, that's not true. This year we no, do No,
1: this though. way we do uh, I'll make one point for all of the liberals who are trying to write to Donald Trump electors and say that they should overturn their uh, vote. The only one that we've seen change their vote so far today and very early on uh, in people coming through is a person who's supposed to vote for Clinton actually vote for Bernie Sanders.
2: He's from Maine. This from elector. Maine. David yeah.
1: Bright, who said that uh, he's not a Clinton elector, he's a Democratic elector. And I do not represent Democrats all over the country. I represent the Democrats in Maine. I cast my vote for Bernie Sanders, not out of spite or malice or anger or as an act of civil disobedience, as he means no disrespect, et cetera. But he thought that Bernie Sanders did a good job organizing. So
0: it's noon on Monday. Many more electors are going to be casting their ballots the rest of the day. Uh, Several states have voted already and we're taping, but we will round up all of that. We'll see if there are any more rogue electors. And we will talk about that in the weekly roundup coming out. In a couple of days, we're also going to talk about NPR's exit interview with President Obama. That's been airing on Morning Edition in Chunks throughout the week. We've also got a full video posted at NPR.org. And we should just note before we continue that as we're taping this, there's been news that the Russian ambassador to Turkey was shot and killed by a gunman at an art exhibit opening in Ankara, the country's capital. We'll follow that story and the U.S. reaction to it, and we'll have the latest on any political implications in our episode later this week. That also goes for the news out of Berlin this afternoon, where a truck drove through a Christmas market, killing at least nine people. A lot of news today. Of course, keep up with NPR's coverage of that at NPR.org and on your local public radio station. Let's get to our uh, first question. It's from Kalen from Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, folks, quick question. Now that the CIA has been clear Russia was involved in the elections events with the intention to favor Trump, What does the U.S. do in response? Isn't another nation hacking U.S. political parties and working to influence the election a big no-no? Maybe I've been watching too much Madam Secretary, but I imagine this is something serious enough to warrant diplomatic action. Big thanks. Happy holidays. Kalen. And I think actually this will get right into that interview that NPR did with President Obama in terms of what he said to Steve Inskeep and then repeated later on at that press conference last week.
2: Yeah, so he told Steve Inskeep that that the U.S. would take action, that there would be action. And then in his year-end press conference that happened on Friday, he went into a little bit more detail about that. Uh, The main point being, and I think we'll hear some audio, but the main point being, we're going to do something. You may hear about it. You may not hear about it. You know, the reason the Russians were so successful with some of their things is they didn't talk about it. Our goal continues to be to send a clear message to Russia or others not to do this to us, because we can do stuff to you. Uh, But it is also important for us to do that in a thoughtful, methodical way. Some of it we do publicly. Some of it uh, we will do in a way that they know, but not everybody will. Uh, And I know that there have been folks out there who suggest somehow that if we went out there and made big announcements and thumped. Uh, our chests uh, about a bunch of stuff that somehow that would potentially spook the russians but keep in mind that we already have enormous numbers of sanctions against the russians
0: he is president for exactly one more month as of today and uh... the next president has not acknowledged russia's role in this at all in fact he's uh... he's pushed back against that argument many times including the, uh, the infamous statement that, that maybe this was just a 400 pound guy in New Jersey. So <laughs> President Obama is on one hand talking about steps that they're going to take, but like It's kind of on the clock, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and as Lindsey Graham joked, if it was a four hundred pound guy, is a four hundred pound guy in Moscow, Um, (laughs) you know. So the diplo speak on this is whether or not the U.S. has a symmetrical or asymmetrical response, but that there would be a response. What that means is a symmetrical response would be another similar cyber attack. An asymmetrical response would be something like blowing something up. Uh, You know, you know, throw a rock through my house and I burn your house down. You know, that's asymmetrical. You know, so we'll see what the U.S. does. And as Tam noted, it'll either be seen or not seen, uh, some of which may be public, as the president said, just to, to show that the U.S. has done something. And uh, much of it very well may not be.
0: All right. So up next is Ralph in New York, who writes, how come Hillary Clinton's margin of victory in the popular vote continued to climb even three plus weeks after the election? Does it take that long to process absentee votes? How many additional votes have been tallied since November 9th? Thanks. Ralph.
3: So since Election Day, Hillary Clinton has gained 5.9 million roughly votes, up to right now around 65.8 million. Donald Trump has gained nearly 3.3 million votes. He is up to around 63 million. And clearly that gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump has grown wider and wider. She now leads him by around 3 million votes. Now, the reason that it takes a while to count votes, um, one is provisional ballots. You have a lot of people who show up to their polling place and maybe their name's not on the rolls. Maybe there's some sort of question about whether or not they get to vote, whether or not they are um, in good standing to vote. So uh, they get what is called a provisional ballot. They fill it out. And then afterwards, their eligibility to vote is checked.
2: There was this great story out of California that a, a reporter at one of the stations out there did. Uh, California is the state that has like taken the longest and has this big trove of Democratic votes.
1: And it's the reason Hillary Clinton's vote has expanded so widely.
2: And and apparently people in California, there's a lot of vote by mail in California because it's no fault absentee. They're encouraging people to vote by mail. And apparently a lot of people in California sit around with their coffee cups, (laughs) filling out their ballots and getting coffee on their ballots, which caused. Among other things. But, you know, there's a latte sipping Californians, as President Obama called them recently. um,
1: What do you mean? Like you can't tell who they voted for necessarily? The
2: the optical scan machine is like, what is this? Is this a checkmark or is this
3: a latte? Even better uh, that by the way, that reporter was Ben Adler. Just yes. To give a shout out, credit where credit's due. There is a great bit where also they talked about people getting jam or jelly like <laughs> uh, on their ballots and it sticking <sighs> up the machine.
0: I get that. I when I lived in California, I filled in my mail-in ballot at my kitchen table, and you I did. don't think I spilled. Yeah, because it's so long. You can sit there. You can look things up. Remember, were, the
2: the sample ballot was like hundreds of pages long. Oh, I like, forgot
0: about the whole song California. and everything. You hated the song.
1: but I didn't hate
0: the song, but <laughs> I forgot that. Yes, it's a very right, long next ballot. Next question is from Chris in New York City. And Chris recorded this question.
1: Yay! So let's take a listen.
0: Hey, y'all. This is Chris in New York City. Hey, Chris. I just want to say thank you so much for what you brought to us over the last few months. It is genuinely made a big difference in just my sanity i want to see if you could answer this question do you know any embarrassing stories or funny anecdotes from within the campaigns that maybe you weren't really supposed to talk about during the election but now that it's over you can tell us i'm sure you guys have heard some funny stuff and i would love a good laugh Thanks so much. Anybody want to go first on this one? Do you have one, Scott? It's all off the record. I don't know if this is funny or embarrassing, but I think it was really telling, and it happened uh, on election night. This was early in the night, and early in the night is key. Uh, You and I were sitting... We were at Hillary Clinton's headquarters, and we were sitting there in the little broadcast area that NPR set up, and Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri came to sit down to talk to our program. And as she was getting ready to get on, um, her cell phone rang, and she picked up the phone and she said, can I call you Mr. Vice President-elect yet? <laughs> um, and she was talking to Tim Kaine and she was talking to Tim Kane, and was really feeling confident. She called him Mr. Vice President. She said she was so proud of him. You know, she told us this when she got off the phone. And I think that to me and, you know, that just kind of got lost in everything else that happened that night. And that to me was such a, a, a clear sign of how confident Democrats were feeling early in the night. Before Florida got away from them, and before everything else got away from them.
2: So um, I don't have one that is that good, or I don't know. It's not that revealing. And again, it's it's Clinton because I was covering the Clinton campaign. At some point, the campaign's Brooklyn office acquired some of those hoverboards. Oh no! Mm-hmm. <laughs> because hoverboards were like all the rage for a short period of time, and people were like riding hoverboards all around the office and having a great time. But then, like. As with all stories with hoverboards, eventually, like, it doesn't always end well because hoverboards.
0: In a crash or a fire.
2: There was no fire. Basically, someone in the campaign had to finally say, guys, we're taking away the hoverboards.
0: (laughs) Moving on, we've got a question from Rob in New Mexico who writes, Donald Trump has been picking people for cabinet positions like Secretary of State and EPA Administrator. However, most of those positions require Senate confirmation. Will those appointments be confirmed by the time Trump takes office on January 20th? If not, who's in charge of those departments and agencies in the meantime? Thanks for doing the show. And yes, I do regularly donate to my local NPR station, KRWG. Shout out to KRWG. Um, Thanks, Rob. All right. So uh, typically, several of the high-level cabinet positions are appointed very early on. So when President Obama took office, Hillary Clinton was confirmed on the 21st, uh, Ken Salazar from Interior, a couple other people confirmed on the 21st, and then uh, Treasury and Attorney General, both very high profile, were, were were confirmed and took office within the first week or so. That's typically how it happens. Uh, the confirmation hearings for Jeff Sessions, who's Trump's pick to be Attorney General, is for January 10th and 11th, again, before Trump takes office. The thing is, though, Democrats have made it clear that they are going to kind of make a big show and raise a lot of questions about conflicts of interest for these nominations as well. The thing is, though, because of a rule change that Democrats did a couple of years ago in the Senate uh, when they were in the majority, Democrats now in the minority are not going to be able to filibuster these picks and really hold them up and never give them a vote. I mean, they can try to all uh, vote as a block and pick off enough Republicans who have questions to deny these picks, but they can't filibuster in a way that they could have before.
2: The committees get to ask for all kinds of financial information. They get to do all of this stuff. Often when nominees run into trouble, they actually run into trouble before their hearing ever starts.
1: And Democrats on the Judiciary Committee are trying to delay the Sessions hearing uh, because, as uh, NPR's Kerry Johnson has reported, Jeff Sessions sent over what was an incomplete questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has tried to get that delayed. Uh, Chuck Grassley, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said absolutely not, and that they will try to start that right away. But I think what's more important than the people who lead the agencies is there are some 4,000 appointees that have to be made uh, that really the Trump transition has not made a ton of headway on. So what you'll wind up with is either the folks who are in the Obama administration, if they continue on, they would still be in charge, although most of them will uh, be resigned on January 20th, uh, maybe by close of business that day. uh, And you'll wind up with uh, the most senior officer in charge of that agency. Thank you,
0: Rob. And again, thanks for donating. Um, Up next, a question from Bruce, who has a bunch of questions about Trump and his campaign money. They are, how much did he raise? He pledged early on that he was using his own money. In the end, was that true? How much did he contribute to his campaign? And does he pay himself back with the fundraising? Thank you, Bruce. Danielle?
3: Okay, a whole bunch of numbers here. I'm going to try to make them at least vaguely digestible. All right, so how much money did Donald Trump raise? He got, uh, as of November 28th, he had raised nearly $151 million in contributions. That includes $18.6 million that he himself contributed to his campaign. But Donald Trump loaned his campaign $47.5 million. Now, this is something that when candidates are very rich and decide to, you know, help out their campaign, they will often loan money to their campaign. But in June, Donald Trump followed through on a promise to say, listen, I'm making them not loans anymore. I'm forgiving them. That is just a contribution. I'm not going to be paid back because some donors were wondering about, "Okay, what happens?
0: But he's one continuing to raise money. He's been doing fundraisers in addition to these thank you tours, and he's been selling some Some exciting gift opportunities and flash sales. Yeah. Have you been getting these? I
2: just got the text over the weekend. It was very exciting. Flash sale. The authentic MAGA cap ornament is on sale. Get two for $79 each or three plus ornaments for $59 each. Today only. Order now. So I guess we've missed our chance. But um, these MAGA cap ornaments keep getting cheaper.
0: That's true. They are sales because they were offering those for a for hundred bucks a couple of weeks ago. I think yeah. we need
1: to play the jingle bells music <laughs> again.
0: And, and the other thing that complicated this even more, and we talked about it a lot this year, was the fact that a lot of this campaign money ended up being redirected to properties that Trump owns, whether that was renting out his own ballrooms for events or paying his own airline to fly himself around the country and uh, the Secret Service, for example, paying a lot of money to fly on his plane. So... It's a more complicated situation than normal. All right. Thanks for that question, Bruce. Next up, Jordan, who's concerned about Merrick Garland, the judge that President Obama nominated to the Supreme Court to fill Justice Scalia's seat. Jordan writes, with the historically long languishing of Merrick Garland in judicial appointment purgatory, I was wondering, what is he doing for money? (laughs) Does he keep judging cases? Has he been suspended during the nomination process? Has he drawn a federal paycheck? Or has he been essentially unemployed for almost a year? Also, is he allowed to continue being a judge? If he is never confirmed or rejected, so much concern for Merrick Garland from Jordan.
2: Well, I have some answers. I have been uh, checking in with both Nina Totenberg, who is our Supreme Court correspondent, and also Carrie Johnson, who is our Justice correspondent. And I have some answers for you. First, from Nina, she says during the time when confirmation seemed possible, i.e., prior to the election, he stopped hearing arguments in pending cases on the theory that any of them could end up in the Supreme Court, and he would have to recuse himself because of conflict of interest. During that time, however, he continued to perform his administrative duties as chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia. Garland will resume hearing arguments on January 18th. One additional note from Carrie Johnson, our justice correspondent, she says that he's being advised by friends to take a long family vacation outdoors someplace um, because they are an outdoorsy (laughs) family. Maybe in the
0: woods of Chappacool. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's working for Hillary Clinton apparently.
0: But he kept getting paid during all of this, Well, because he was doing
2: administrative duties at the court where he is a judge and will continue to be a judge going forward. He just wasn't hearing cases. So he was like working on the budget and going to work every day. So this is like
0: the worst of all
1: worlds. He didn't get to Mm -hmm. just
0: chill for a year.
2: No, and he was preparing for hearings, that confirmation hearings that never happened.
1: He will forever be an uh, answer to a Jeopardy question.
0: <laughs> uh, Susan in Waynesboro, Virginia writes, Dear NPR Politics Podcast, I plan to become more involved in politics and I have a question. What actually happens when I contact my representative? Is my comment actually noted or tallied and considered at some point? I understand that each representative likely behaves differently, but I wonder if my comment actually matters. Thanks for all you do and snaps, Susan. Thank you, Susan.
1: All okay, right.
0: that was a good well, snap. Well,
3: I mean, diff- she's right. Different offices might do different things. I did. Uh Uh, on Susan's question reach out to a friend of mine who used to work in Senator Al Franken's office. She was one of the lower level workers and she did read read a lot of these letters take a lot of these phone calls and so on. The way she explained it is this that of course Senator Franken didn't read every single letter that came in or hear about every every single phone call. But when a certain critical mass was reached when a whole bunch of people had written in about this environmental uh, regulation or this thing or that thing then. It would sort of get moved up the chain towards the senator, and he would eventually hear about it. Now, then, there's a question. It's
1: not unlike, by the way, how our podcast works. Yeah, yeah. write <laughs> <laughs> in about enough things. Yeah, that's
3: true. Yeah. Electoral college, hey. And uh, hey, so and then there's you know sort of what would he do with it? He might work it into a speech on the floor of the Senate. You know, I've had five thousand people from Minnesota write in about this, and they're really upset. Blah blah blah.
0: Was that kind of a Franken impersonation? You that started was, to go down the road of
3: that was a. a an important man in the Senate <laughs> doing important things. <laughs> Rah, I have a legislation for Rah. you. Rah. All right,
2: cut that. No, no that was great. <laughs> I, I have heard that when it is sort of an organized thing, where there is a campaign, where you know, name your group c- creates a link on a website that sends you to call your congressperson or or email your congressperson. Those are not taken. As seriously, I mean, that just becomes like a tick yeah. mark on, a, you know, an Excel sheet. But if you write a genuine letter, now it takes more work. But if it is not part of an organized campaign, I think it's given a little bit more weight. And the other thing I would say is that members of Congress, if you're not advocating, but you need something from your member of Congress, they do constituent services. That is like one of the important, great things about members of Congress is they are your representative. And it's not just about legislation or big national political concerns. But like if your if your dad is having trouble with you know the the VA, or if you know you have a, a social security issue or whatever. It is often your member of Congress can be very helpful.
1: Certain members of Congress have better constituent services than other members of Congress. It's kind of like customer service for your local cable company. you know. And they really endear you if they do a good job or not. I mean, I remember my local congressman when we had an issue with a particular energy company that couldn't quite seem to keep the lights on uh, (laughs) when the wind blew. uh, A lot of us wrote letters. And this congressman who had some clout created a subcommittee and had hearings and brought the CEO of that particular energy company in. And they actually made a whole host of changes even without any kind of legislation happening, but because they were, they felt public pressure to do so.
3: So you're saying you got better customer service than you usually get from the local cable company.
1: I'd say, well, yeah. that's probably true.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Next up is Matthew with a recorded question about a few of Donald Trump's most vocal supporters. Hey y'all, my name is Matthew and I am from St. Louis and my question is in regards to Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich. It just seems strange to me that those three jumped on his bandwagon at a very early stage and yet those are the three who seem to not have any place to live in this uh, presidency. Yeah. yeah.
2: Hmm. Womp womp. Sometimes loyalty isn't rewarded.
0: Which is most interesting with Chris Christie, because he's the one who took the biggest gamble, right? Like he (laughs) jumped onto the Trump bandwagon. He was the first probably mainstream high profile Republican to endorse him. He got ridiculed with like the Curb Your Enthusiasm recuts and things like that for the faces he was making during some of those press conferences. And in the end, uh, it looks like he's going to be totally shut out of the Trump administration. I
1: I think these three not getting anything uh, is really fascinating. And it makes you wonder about what Donald Trump's, uh, you know, loyalty or repayment to some of that loyalty will be like in an administration uh, going forward. I mean, we've saw him cycle through campaign managers. One side of this is. People have said that Rudy Giuliani didn't want to take anything below secretary of state so that he could continue to make a lot of money in the private sector. Uh, And it could be a similar situation with Christie or Gingrich. But it is a striking pattern of folks who came out early on for Donald Trump pretty high profile and are left out in the cold. Last question. It is recorded and it is from Meredith. Hey guys! So I'm just driving home from
0: Thanksgiving at my mom's house. My mom is a huge Trump supporter. Um, I'm very
1: anti-Trump. I was just wondering if you had any suggestions on books I could give as a gift for Christmas to my mom to help her understand my perspective and then
0: also a book I could buy for myself to read to understand her perspective a little bit better. Uh, thanks! Love the show. Have a great day. Bye. This is a question in the NPR wheelhouse, and we are excited about it. (laughs) Who wants to go first?
3: Well, Tam has a book here on the desk.
2: I guess that means I have to go first, right? So I don't know if this book will create better understanding between you and your mother, but i think it would help you potentially better understand donald trump that's certainly why i am currently reading this book it's called the power of positive thinking by norman vincent peel it is a uh, best selling book from the 1950s actually
0: and can i just say before tam keeps going that you definitely did the reading rainbow like pause and turn the the <laughs> cover out to all of
1: us when you when you plugged it i
2: thought you were going <laughs> to call me out for having an airplane <laughs> ticket as my bookmark no no just the Doesn't. reading rainbow
1: because you know what take a look <laughs> in a book.
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, this book was uh, first uh, written in 1952. Um, it hasn't really been updated. So some of the examples are a little um, dated. But Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor at the church that Donald Trump attended um, with his family when he was growing up. And it's, it's a book about, well, the power of positive thinking. But I think it does give some insight into sort of the the thinking of the president-elect and how he sees the world. Um, One quote in this book that stood out to me as I as I've been reading it here, it says attitudes are more important than facts. That is worth repeating until its truth grips you. Any fact facing us, however difficult, even seemingly hopeless, is not so important as our attitude toward that fact. And I think Donald Trump, Believing that he was going to win Mm -hmm. in the face of people saying he wouldn't or uh, Donald Trump saying he has won the popular vote in the face of numbers saying that he hasn't. All of those things, I think, sort of fits with this philosophy.
0: But you don't have to take Tam's word for it.
2: You can read it yourself. (laughs) And there could be... There could be, you know, the added side benefit of it's sort of a self-help book, and maybe we could all use a little self-help.
0: Uh, I've got I've got another one on the Trump side. Um, it's by S.L. Price, who is a phenomenal Sports Illustrated uh, feature writer. He just writes, like, some of the best sports writing in the world, I think. He wrote a book that came out this year. It's called Playing Through the Whistle, and it's all about uh, a town in western Pennsylvania called Aliquippa. That was um, kind of a rise and fall 20th century town where... It became it was like a company steel town and it got built up and it built up and it was just one of the biggest steel mills in the country, just cranking out steel, going all over the place. And then, of course, that industry shifted gears and changed and some of the work went overseas and some of the work got automated and kind of the rise and fall of this town that's kind of really in the Trump wheelhouse in terms of the storyline that Donald Trump talked about all year about how. You know, we used to make things in this country. This country used to be great. What happened to it? So I feel like he's talking about the Aliquippus of the world. And this is kind of a history of this town in the 20th century. And the reason he wrote the book is that even as Aliquippus' footprint has shrank and shrank and shrank, it's still this sports powerhouse and it still sends people to the NFL all the time. And has continued its football dominance even as the rest of the town has faded.
1: Hmm. Can I just say, this is all making me really intellectually tired. Like, I mean, the entire election season, you know, the trying to make sense of understanding, you know, get... Frankly, I think what a lot of us could use is a break from politics Mm -hmm. in many ways. And I think you'd probably be better off reading something that didn't have anything to do with politics, that you could use a different part of your brain and, you know, just sort of shift gears. Uh, NPR has a great uh, feature on its website to kind of push you to uh, more than 300 books that you could pick from choose one of those for the holidays it's, it's called usually the, book, yeah.
2: concierge.
1: the or, book concierge or
2: go to the movies
3: honestly. go to the movies go see
1: Arrival
2: it's really good
1: I you know or
2: Rogue One it's something <laughs> yes La La
3: Land watch Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone be cute for a couple of hours
1: Manchester yeah. by the Sea is uh, it's nice too did you see it nope I want to see it <laughs>
3: sure. we just right. turned into pop culture happy hour I like lots, this
0: lots of entertainment options all right we gotta wrap this up but before we go a shout out to claire at the bbc in london who wrote us to say that they've enjoyed our work here this year right back at you claire she also added being british i'm not one to go on clearly but may i just add one more thing we have literally no idea what queso is (laughs) she says in a british way a very happy christmas to you and many thanks once again claire thank you claire there's been a lot of queso on the podcast lately. Thanks to those of you who have sent us recipes. Tam has been pushing aggressively to have a podcast episode where we make the queso recipes and compare them.
2: Yes. I'm
1: on board. I've got mm-hmm. my crock pot. Should I will bring not, it. Hold on a second, awesome. though. Should we not back up? We're not answering what queso is for her. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's queso. in the
0: feed. We spent a lot of time on queso in the feed.
1: It mean, oh, It is a cheesy it dip. Means, it literally means cheese, but, but it's it a is cheesy not, dip. It's like salsa. But it's it often,
2: is not made with actual cheese. It is made with some sort of cheese Substitute sometimes. It's it can cheese. Be made with yeah, cheese. But it's like it's often like spicy, you know?
0: Yeah. It's right, not guys. just
3: I'm trying to help.
0: That is all the time for the mail for now. Thanks to everybody who sent us mail. We really appreciate it. Just like your congressional representative, even if we can't reply, your questions and comments are always very helpful, and we read everything. So thank you. We started this episode talking about the Electoral College, and before we go, we need to talk about one more thing. We don't do the can't let it go at the beginning of the week, but I feel like we need to make an exception here. Uh, so this weekend, SNL final episode of the year had a lot of funny things related to politics. But I feel like my favorite one was Hillary. Actually, it was Hillary Clinton played by Kate McKinnon, doing the Love Actually thing where she's on the uh, the doorstep of an elector with the uh, with the cards right. and the boombox. It's hard to play a clip, but <laughs> it was pretty. Hilarious and led me to watch Love Actually last you night You had never seen. Oh this? no, I've seen it many times. but oh, okay. I, I saw it again. I've never
2: seen it, and I was like, I know this must be a movie reference, but I was really confused. You're not missing
3: anything.
0: Don't. Watch oh. It. <laughs> we are not opening up that can of worms <laughs> okay. here. If you haven't written us but want to, our address is NPR Politics at NPR.org. You can record yourself asking a question and send it to that mailbox as well. We'll be back with our weekly roundup on Thursday to cover the political news of the week. And again, we'll talk a little bit about NPR's exit interview with President Obama then. You can keep up with our political coverage using the NPR One app and, of course, your local public radio station. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the
2: White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter.
1: And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.